0: Welcome to Pursue Ministries. You're listening to Men's Fraternity, Session 11, Biblical Definition of Manhood, Part 2. The speaker is Bill Howard. So let's, uh, let's jump back in here, and we were talking about, if you recall, there are two atoms, two men, two twin towers of humanity. There's the first Adam and the second Adam, and one is a life-giving soul, the other one's a life-taking soul. And really, we all stand in the shadow of one of those two men. All are born into the first Adam, the natural Adam, which is to be passive, irresponsible, and cowardly. And we're all born naturally in that way. And unless something comes in and changes that course and alters the direction of what natural man does, like the first Adam then we'll die that way. And unfortunately, the Bible says if we die in the first Adam, we are dead eternally, separated from God eternally. And so that's why Jesus told the guy named Nicodemus, who was a good religious man, you must be born again if you wanna enter the kingdom of heaven because that first Adam has to be judged and die so that the new, the second Adam, Christ can be birthed and live in and through you. Make sense? A little bit? I know it's spiritual, but the Bible plays it out. So here's what we're going to do. We kind of compared and contrast those two guys. We're going to talk about the four defining differences between Adam and Christ. And so the first Adam fell into passivity. Remember in Genesis 3.6 when the tempter came and was dialoguing with his wife, where was Adam? He was right there with her, right? And what was Adam doing? Nothing, okay, that's the big phrase, nothing. (coughs) Passive, on the bench, wiffle ball. He wasn't in the game. And so today, what what can happen is a lot of men will come home and uh, maybe they wake up in the morning and they wrap themselves in their corporate identity, their work identity, and they go out and they make things happen during the day, and then oftentimes when a man comes home in the course of the evening, he, he's like the invisible man. He unwraps, and all of a sudden nobody can see him because he's not really there. He's there, but he's not there. It's like my dad, present but absent usually present in one chair most of his life front on the television. And it's real easy for a guy when he comes home to check out rather than check in. And so that's the first Adam. He fell into passivity. The second Adam, Jesus, rejected passivity. There you have the first part of a masculine definition. He rejected passivity turn to Philippians chapter 2, we're going to see where Jesus, and you've probably heard me say the phrase before that Jesus is God with an earth suit on, and uh, here's the passage that describes when God put an earth suit on, verse 5, it says, had this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, Christ humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So why are we suggesting that? Because there was more masculinity in the manger than there ever was in the garden because each guy was given a will to obey. First guy, all he had to do was not eat from that one tree. The second Adam was given the task to come and make new and clean up the mess of the first Adam, which was to bring salvation to all who through him could be made new. But it was going to cost him his life. And so when God, however this works, calls for the son, who will obey me, unlike the first who was passive, the second Adam said, here I am God, send me. And all of a sudden he's translated into the form of a man birthed through a woman in a manger. And Jesus now think about this Jesus never said that I've come to do my own will ever he always said I have come to what do my father's will and so what you find with Jesus Christ at the manger is one who rejected passivity whereas the first Adam accepted passivity secondly The first Adam disregarded his responsibilities. He blew it. But the second Adam accepted responsibility. And so what responsibilities did did both guys really have? Well, bottom line, let me give you one, two, three. Each guy had a will to obey. Each guy had a work to do. And each guy, number three, had a woman to love. And so the first guy, if you remember, as I'd mentioned, all he had to do was not eat from the one tree. Everything else was available. The second guy, he talked about choosing for a lifetime to transfer his trust continually in his father's will, and he suffered greatly. In fact, in Hebrews 5:8, the scripture says that Jesus, as a son, learned obedience through what he suffered. How about that? Probably most of us as sons didn't learn necessary obedience through what we suffered. But certainly Jesus Christ did. And so he had a hard going. But he came to obey the will of his Father. So I turn to John 4. Jesus is going to convey something to his disciples. Jesus has just been talking to a woman at the well. And he is offering her a drink of water because she's thirsty. She's spiritually thirsty. She is dry inside. She has no life. And so Jesus knows that and, and uh, he said, if you'd ask me, I'd give you a drink and you'd never thirst again. And this woman who had had at least five husbands was living with a sixth guy. Jesus reminds her of that. And so she's feeling pretty guilty. And then uh, she recognizes there's something about her that's out of alignment with God, which is her lifestyle. And then all of a sudden she says, well, you know, I've heard there's a guy coming, this Messiah from the Jews. And Jesus said, well, you know what? You're looking at him. I'm the guy. And all we know is that her whole life does a 180. And she is spiritually birthed. And she goes into the city and she tells a bunch of guys, everything, a man, she just met a guy who knows everything I've done and the whole city comes out to meet Jesus and some of his disciples. And as they're coming out, it's a harvest, but it's a spiritual harvest. And people are looking, or I'm sorry, Jesus is looking at them, and the disciples, are they don't get it at all as they normally don't, right? And so here's what happens. Jesus said to the disciples, now y'all preserve, water but he's now telling the disciples hey guys listen I want you to know because they've already apparently taken a drink of water but he tells these guys you need food and so the food is uh, something like water which is a spiritual eternal life so here's the question what is the food Jesus is offering to these men which clearly they don't have yet which my experience in life is a lot of times guys bump through life and they've never eaten the food either. So what is it? Well, here's what it is. Look at verse um, uh, 31. In the meanwhile, the disciples were requesting him saying, Rabbi, eat, because they went out to get him this food, some food. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you guys don't know about yet. And the disciples, therefore, were saying to one another, no one bought him anything to eat, did, did they? In other words, what, what is he talking about here? And Jesus said, and here it is, verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. Now, so here's the deal, guys. The food, if, think about it. It's nourishment to your soul. Can you imagine not ever eating food? What would happen to your body? You would become emaciated and eventually die. So listen, if you are born again into Christ, you need to learn to eat. And so the food that he's talking about here is obeying the will of his father. Now, how can a guy know what the will of God is? How can you know what the will of God is for your life? Yeah, right here. Guys, you get a car, what comes in the glove box? Bible, you get a life, guess what comes in the spiritual glove box of your life? It's this thing right here, this book that has given you a sense where God can tell you what to do, but you've got to relinquish your will and say, be it your will God, not my own. Make sense? I mean, that's just pure masculinity. It's, it's obedience to the point of dying to yourself so you can live. Remember Jesus said, if you seek to find your life here, is a man, what will happen to you? You'll lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, for my will, you will find it. How about that? And so there's a sense where Jesus models a Life of obedience. The best leader is a great follower. The best leader, guys, is a great follower. Because the best leader of all time, I mean, it's 2011 since the birth of the greatest man that has ever walked on the face of the earth, and he's never said, I've come to do my own will. (laughs) his whole life was a follower make sense and in your marriage that's true if your wife does not see a man yielded and submitted and following his leader it's going to make her submission to your leadership difficult pure and simple okay okay And so what you have here, guys, then, is the first uh, Adam disobeyed the will of God. The second Adam had this will. And not only did he obey it, but he was inviting everybody else to do the same thing. Uh, For a work to do, what's the work he had to do? Remember in this metaphor in John 4, what work did Jesus come to do? Why did Jesus Christ come to the world? He came to seek And save the lost, of which we all were, unless he had come, died, buried, raised again. Listen, it was all for naught, everything, all of human history for naught, unless that one guy obeyed the Father and accomplished his work. Okay? Very specific. And so what you find here is that... Now, how would you... Guys, listen. How would you like this? This is what was said of Christ, where Jesus, at the end of his life, he's in the upper room. He's about ready to go to the crucifixion. He knows what's going to happen. All hell is not broken loose yet, but he knows it's about ready to. And they're having their last supper. And it's in John 17, and he's praying to his father. Okay? And if you ever want to see a very intimate look into the heart of Jesus Christ with God the Father, read John 17. It's called the High Priestly Prayer. It's very intimate and very distinct, by the way, and very purpose-driven with regard to why he's on the planet and what he's calling the followers that he is now inviting to follow him to do. But in this John 17, how, how would you like this, guys? At the end of your life, if you're Steve Jobs, I don't know if you read about some of his eulogy. But apparently, right before he was rated pass, he said, Oh wow, oh wow, oh wow. We don't know what all wow was, but it could have been, Oh wow, I wish I'd have known this while I was on this side. <laughs> but here's the deal here's what Jesus said I've glorified thee on earth, having accomplished the work which thou has given me to do. Wow. How would you like to end your life that way? You're on your deathbed. Hey, God, here I am. I have accomplished the work that you've given me to do. You know, unfortunately today, uh, there's a lot of men that aren't sure exactly what the work is. If I could tell you one thing I've experienced in in my years of ministry, even today, I sat down with a guy yesterday. Uh, for lunch and he's really trying to figure out he's had success but now what he's trying to figure out is how can he live significantly because success doesn't always equal significance right and so because ultimately here's the deal Uh, men you're created I am created I'm not the creator. I'm created. And the reason why a lot of guys feel a sense of purposelessness or emptiness inside is because we live outside the will of God and we're not necessarily involved in his work. We're involved in our work, but necessarily his work. And all I can tell you is... uh, You know, Jesus Christ came into the world very specifically. The only known reason I can can figure theologically why we're still alive, because quite honestly, the best thing that can happen to you the moment you become a Christian, you know what it is? Die. I mean, that's why Paul said, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. See, the best thing you have to do is die. So why live? Because there is work to do. There's work to do. And what's the work? The harvest is plentiful. The workers are what? Few. Pray to the Lord of the harvest for workers. (laughs) That's all I can tell you. Again, I didn't write the mail. I'm just delivering it the way it is. You don't hear it much because people always feel bad about it. But all I can tell you is, as a man, when Jesus Christ enters into your life, you become like Him. Not Him, but like Him. And He now has a purpose in your life to be like Him because the, the purpose of a Christian is to be conformed to the image of who, Christ. Well, if you're going to be in the image of Christ, then what was Christ about? The lost. Seek and save in the lost, obeying the will of the Father, and accomplishing His work. And by the way, the first Adam, the second, the third thing that he, uh, the first Adam was called to do was to love a woman, and in that context, it was a physical woman. In the spiritual context, Jesus Christ was also called the a woman. And who's that? All those who said, yes, I, I say I do, Jesus, to what you've done for me on that cross. And that spiritual union between Christ and those people who say yes, and it's called the ecclesia, the called out ones, the ones who said, yes, I do, which is any man in here who said yes to Christ, you become, to Jesus Christ, his bride. You see that? And so Christ, the first Adam, disobeyed the will of God. All he had to do was work in the garden, and that, and then he was cursed in that because of his disobedience to the Father. And what did he do with the woman? He was called to love. He allowed her to be accosted by a serpent while he did nothing. By contrast, the uh, second Adam obeyed the will of the Father, accomplished his work, of which why you and I are sitting here right now talking about this. Why? Because he loves us, the woman. We are the bride of Christ. It's pretty cool, right? Makes sense, guys? It's, don't you think it's cool? I don't know. When I, uh, the first time I heard this, I went, wow, I just think this is awesome. Because it makes so much sense to me on what we're supposed to be and do. Okay, so what causes a man then to accept social and spiritual responsibility? Well, point A, when the primary social responsibility rests on him. In other words, you will not do what it is you need to do unless somebody tells you to do it and you realize you're the guy that has to make it happen. I've known in my life, there have been points and times in my life where I've been faced, pushed in a corner. And you get scared. And you realize, I've I got to do this. Nobody's coming to my rescue. Nobody's going to come and resolve what it is that I have been called to obey for the work I have to do. And to love my wife, because she's the one who said yes to me. And in those three areas, let me tell you, nobody can accomplish what it is that you are called to accomplish. Until you're pushed against the corner, you'll never come out fighting. But when a man gets there, and so in other words, when, when all of a sudden you recognize you're the man, it rests on you. Okay? Okay. And boys need to learn this because point B here, he learns it when he is trained at an early age by men in their lives to assume these responsibilities. So in other words, as we had talked before, how a woman is reminded about every 30 days of her transcendent cause. We have no such reminder. And so we have to be told what to do. And I think that's why perhaps even in the Bible, before Eve came into existence, God spoke, he told Adam what to do. Go work in the garden and everything you could enjoy, just don't eat of that one tree. You see it, just told what to do. Uh, obey it, do it. You know, oftentimes over the years as I've worked with men uh, in marriage and I've had this in my own life. And um, you know, a guy will kind of sit down with you, and he'll talk about how things aren't good in his marriage or whatever. And the bottom line is, and he might start whining, complaining about how hard it is, or about who he's married to, or about what his wife is or isn't doing, and how hard his work, or you know, and part of it, you go, man, I'm so sorry. So what? You got to get off your butt and go do it. It doesn't matter. You can whine all, you all you want. Unless you change, it ain't happening. You see, part of the masculine soul, guys, and I know we're living in this world where everybody wants to feel good about themselves. I'm just telling you, as a man, there's a part of being a man that's just stinking hard. You just got to get up, go to work, make it happen, go to bed, and, so, and sometimes it's just that way. And a lot of times guys are like, we're looking for these amazing things to happen. You know, sometimes I'm telling you, Jesus was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He suffered. Because here's the deal, and this is the spiritual part of life, is I think we've got to recognize this is temporary. This is not it. It isn't. The Bible says... I'm a citizen of heaven. I'm a pilgrim passing through on my way to eternity. Now, what I do here affects eternity, but this isn't it. Now, you either believe that or you don't. If you believe this is it's it, you'll become very self-absorbed. <laughs> and you'll be a weird Christian. I call them hedonistic Christians. It's an oxymoron. How can a Christian be hedonistic? Because hedonism is the idea of absorbing personal pleasure for yourself. And yet, what you find is a Christian, the objective of a Christian is to give your life away. It's not to seek to get it, but it's to give it away. Hedonism is just the opposite. And what I find in the church today is I find men, women, walking around with this view God wants me to be happy. Are you kidding me? I'm just telling you, it's not in the Bible. God wants you to be faithful. He wants you to be obedient. Trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy. See, happiness isn't something that's going to happen. All of a sudden, I want to be trust and obedient. It's you trust and obey, and happiness is a byproduct. Remember, Edith Schaefer once said, um, the goal of the Christian is not to be happy. It's to be eternally significant. And when you find that your life becomes eternally significant, happiness then becomes a byproduct of obedience to Jesus Christ. That makes sense? And so, there you lie. And so we have to be trained to do this at an early age. And then point C, when a man has had a spiritual birth, that empowers him to see himself as alive to give light to others that's when he will accept social and spiritual responsibility is when he becomes alive in Christ by receiving Christ into his life and trusting him okay so point c so what we have now guys then is a we had the first adam fill into past city second adam rejected it Two, we had the first Adam disregard of responsibilities. The second Adam accepted it. Three, uh, point C, the first Adam abandoned his post of leadership. The second Adam chose to lead courageously. Okay? Chose to lead courageously. And so, how did he lead here? Uh, number one, men were created to lead. But it takes courage, doesn't it? You think about it, uh, again, back in the garden when Adam took a divot out of his wife and shot an air ball with God. And all of a sudden God shows up and said, hey, Adam, where are you? Where was Adam? (laughs) Adam. And think about it. He hiding. Hiding. Wow. Now again, if God steps into our house in the cool of our air-conditioned room and says, hey, Bill Howard, where are you? I mean, where am I going to be? Hiding somewhere or being involved? Right? And so... Leadership, it it involves three things here. First of all, what Jesus did is he gave direction. He gave direction. How about this, guys? Think about it. Jesus shows up. He walks into your life, and he said, Hey, listen, follow me. Follow me. Wow. Wow. How about that? I mean, have you ever said that to anybody? Follow me. Which clearly uh, creates the idea he knew where he was going, right? And he told these guys, I will make you fishers of men. In other words, I'll get you involved in obeying my father and accomplishing his work for a woman he loves. I'll get you involved in that process. If you follow me. And so I I, I just think there's basically, uh, Robert Lewis talks about there are two kinds of leaders. There are playbook leaders and there are natural leaders. And probably in this room, there may be one or two natural leaders. Uh, They're very unique uh, men who are natural leaders. They're guys who literally could show up in a room, even in a group like this, and within a very short amount of time, we'll know who knows what to do. Because essentially, a natural leader just knows the next thing to do. And he's, he's ready to say, this is what we gotta do. And for whatever reason, because a lot of times you get men together, even like, where do you guys wanna go? You guys wanna go and uh, grab coffee after this? Where do you guys wanna go? And we'll all sit there going, I don't know where you wanna go, I don't know where you wanna go. Somebody's gonna go, we're gonna go to Waffle House down here And everybody's going to go, okay, great, that's where we'll go. (laughs) That's a natural leader. Does that make sense? Most guys are not that way. Most guys are like, I don't know anything. (laughs) Right? And And so what a guy can do, if you're not a natural leader, every man can be a playbook leader. Now, what we mean by that is that a playbook leader... Uh, where it's interesting because Paul said, for example, in 2 Corinthians 12, he said, you know what? I'm not sure what to do. And then God speaks and says, well, I'll tell you, I'll help you. In fact, when you're weak, I'll be strong. I'll tell you what to do. You see, a playbook leader learns to read the playbook. And he learns to obey. You see, the, the, the strange thing about a natural leader is, unless he's directed and guided, he can lead people in a, astray. He can cause great damage simply because he's a natural leader and people will follow him. The question is, where's he going? Let's see, a playbook leader. So let's say, guys, you come home uh, this afternoon and you talk to your wife about some of the stuff you've been learning. And you say, hey, I think we need to make a few adjustments. And she's going, you've never done this before. Well, all of a sudden, you can. And what, she, what she'll be seeing in you, I hope, is that you're in a group of men. You're finally reading the playbook. Uh, you've got some other noble men now who are pursuing the leader of life, Jesus Christ, and she sees that. And all of a sudden, she will then, hopefully, if she's a godly woman, say, you know what? I see my husband yielded. I see him submitted. I see him learning God's playbook. I see him learning, and he's sharing some of this because it's not what he's wanting me to do. He's sharing it's because what he's learning he needs to do. And it's very attractive to her. Does it make sense? So see, any guy can be a playbook leader if you're a good follower. And so second thing leadership is, point B, is Jesus Christ gave protection. And so he said, I'm the good sheep, I'm the good shepherd, and I lay my life down for the sheep. And so he protects, and then the third thing that Jesus Christ did is he gave provision and so if you recall in Braveheart, you guys ever see Braveheart? Is that not the all-time best guy movie? God, I bet I've seen it 10 times. And I, I never watch movies twice. But I've seen that one probably 10 times. Mostly because through it, and I've watched it with my boys, trying to impart principle. Because it's full of principle. It's full of great masculinity, and points where men, it demonstrates how men need to lead when everyone else is unwilling and cowardly. And so in the movie, the the overall accomplishment of the movie is a man named William Wallace who has some traumatic things happen to him, but he comes back into his country, ultimately through a series of traumatic events that he becomes a man who wants to liberate his countrymen from the rule of an English tyrant, this king of England, right? And he's willing to lay down his life for freedom. And the whole movement of the movie is about a man moving to liberate, to become free. And he wants his countrymen to be free. And it's like they're all so used to being in subjection to the king, he gets so frustrated at moments. You know, if you watch the movie, it's like, ah, but there's moments he's, and all of a sudden guys will follow him. And if you remember, I think it was William the Bruce, is that was his name? Robert, Robert the Bruce. And he said, uh, you know, uh, he leads and men will follow. You remember at that one point when the lords came and and William Wallace came in and, and any Robert the Bruce is walking out with William Wallace and they were talking about some of this and and William Wallace turns to Robert the Bruce and says, "Listen, if you would lead, I would follow." Remember Robert the Bruce? Go, really? Remember that? And so here's the deal: leadership is amazingly courageous, but it's but it's terribly attractive to men. Right, And so what you have then in the movie is this guy who leads, 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 leads all the way till he dies. And at the very end of his life, if you recall, he's suffering. And it was really symbolic, wasn't it? Where here he is suffering, being uh, taken advantage of by his captors. And uh, all of a sudden when he's dying, remember his last breath? Remember what he yells out? freedom right well here's the deal that's Jesus Christ it's a great picture of what Christ did see unlike William Wallace who died so he could be free from the tyranny of England see what's amazing about Jesus Christ is Jesus Christ suffered amazingly so not for him to be free so we could be free See, in one sense, Father, I give up my spirit to you. It's done. It's done. Freedom. Now, from his torment, his suffering on the earth for certain, but for every person who comes to him will be free. Isn't that amazing? It's phenomenal. And here's the deal, guys. If you have Christ in your life, Do you realize that you have in you the ability to offer that same freedom to every other guy you meet who has not come into contact with Christ yet? Do you realize that you have in you real freedom? And you can offer that to every guy you meet that's in bondage. And the Bible says that if you are not in Christ, you are held captive by Satan to do his will. Every man who's not in Christ is enslaved. Listen, if you love people, if you really do, if you love Christ, I'm just telling you, you'll love people. And you'll love people that are not like you. If you love Christ, you'll love people who are unloved, who are held captive. And their life may, they may be wearing a tutu They may be looking different than you. Why? Because they're not Christ's kids yet. They have not yielded their life. They're not free. But you are. You're a free man. And so that's part of the cool thing about being in Christ. Is that we can give direction, protection, and provision. Because that's what he did. And that's what he's called us to do. So. How do we do that? What's the biggest obstacle then, guys, for a man? Point two, here it is. You ready? This is the biggest obstacle for us leading. To be a courageous leader, every man must master one major obstacle. Anybody have a guess? Huh? No. It's our feelings. Feelings. Nothing more than feelings, right? I don't feel like loving my wife. I don't feel like getting in. I don't, I'm tired, right? <laughs> you remember when Jesus was getting ready to go on the cross? you think he felt like going to the cross, honestly? <laughs> remember that? He's kneeling and he's saying, Father, if there's any way, I'm telling you, I do not feel like doing this. Really, I don't feel like doing this. If there's any other way that this cup can pass over me, that I don't have to go do this, because this is not gonna feel great. But be it your will and not my own. You see that? I'm just that's just pure masculinity. Because the opposite of your feelings is a, it's a it's a cool word the Bible uses it a lot and in fact in Hebrews 11:6 it's the only way you can please God. You know what? It's another F word Faith. You see the opposite of feelings is faith. Faith is a choice to obey God regardless of your feelings. You see, I find that there's a lot of men, have great passion, but they're not rooted in any principle. And if you're a passionate man and you're a feeling-oriented guy, without principle, you're going to look foolish, and you're going to make some dumb choices. Right? Can you turn that coffee maker off there, bro? Thanks, Micah. Does that make sense, guys? I'm telling you, I don't know about you, but day in and day out, my feelings is what really governs my life if I'm not careful. And so that's the chief obstacle. So how do we govern our feelings? All I can tell you is is we have to learn to harness, just like a horse. A horse has to be harnessed and bridled. And if he's not, what, what will happen to a horse? He'll just do his own thing. He'll battle with you the entire time you're trying to ride that thing. But what happens is when a horse has a harness and then a bridle, you are the one now is in control. And so, guys, we've got to learn to have our lives bridled with truth so that God can have his way with us. And it's a yielding of ourselves to, to Jesus Christ. And I'm telling you, all I can tell you is when you, on a regular basis, dive into this book it was written by God... By the way, the Bible said that says about this book that it's alive. And so somebody once said the Bible is the only book I can read when the author is currently present. And so when you're reading it, what you'll discover is, is that God will harness you, bridle you, and keep you from jumping in a direction that can cause great damage to you and to the people around you that's been given charge for over or for you to be charged over and so that's the chief obstacle okay and then lastly here guys uh, the first Adam sought a lesser reward which was Eve's approval I just want my wife to like me the second Adam sought a greater reward which was God's reward Now, interestingly, I wish we had more time on this, but we don't. But what is interesting about this, guys, is that the Bible is full of reward. And a lot of people like to talk about it, especially Christians, as though somehow once you become a Christian, it doesn't matter what you do. Let me tell you, it matters like crazy what you do. And the Bible's full of this because the reward issue is a big deal with God. And so all I can say is that no man will do something for nothing. I'm telling you right now, you can hear everything we're talking about, and unless you believe there's something in it for you, you're not going to do it. As much as you hear obedience, yeah. Uh, uh, uh. That's great, oh, but is there anything in it for me? Uh, I, all I can say is that you will not be God's man unless you believe there's a reward in it. And here's what's so cool. Now, I'm not, I didn't come up with this. Jesus Christ conveys this, and the Bible's full of this, and I just want to show you a few places, okay? Because the, there's a common thought out there Is it now that I'm a Christian and my name's written in the book of life and I'm going to heaven and I'm a citizen of heaven and God's child, that you know what? Heaven's the same for everybody. Is it? Is it? The answer? No. Now, heaven is an experience forever on a new planet. God's going to create a new earth. And a new Jerusalem that's going to be apparently in place of the moon, and that's where Jesus Christ will dwell. I mean, I'm trying to give you a picture. And we're going to be roaming about on this planet and connecting to Christ would be awesome in a new glorified body. But all I can tell you is the Bible teaches very clearly that there is a reward or a loss for eternity. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it talks about each man has a foundation laid, which is Christ in his life. If you're born again, you're in the second Adam, there's a foundation laid. The question is, what kind of life are you going to build upon what God's invested in you through his son? And it says, each man can build wood, hay, straw, gold, silver, precious stones. And then it says, and then the day will test the quality of each man's work. You see, will to obey, work to do, woman to love. There'll be a judgment day. The day is there in 1 Corinthians 3 is the Bema seat. It's the judgment seat of Christians. Not non believing people, Christians. Where you and I will be judged on the quality of our work. That's why it refers to gold, silver, precious, wood, hay, straw and it'll be tested with fire and then what'll happen is that which remains the Bible says each man will receive what? reward for his work how about that? however that which is burned each man will suffer suffer loss what? of what? Reward. Then it goes on to say, but that man who suffered loss, his work burned, it says, yet he himself will be saved from what? From eternal separation. In other words, if you're a Christian, you're going to heaven. But here's the deal. How you live (coughs) matters to God, and he will judge our work. Now I don't know all that, that it looks like, I'm going to show you some other passages about this. Uh, it talks about in Revelation 20. Uh, when it talks about uh, the judgment of God, that God has a book of remembrance that he writes in Malachi, the very last chapter in Malachi. He talks about the Christians are complaining because they're saying, hey, the, the, the godless people seem to be profiting on the world. And what about us, God? God? So I'll tell you what, I'm going to get a book and it's called the book of remembrance. And I'm going to record everything that you do. I'll reward you. Here's the deal. It answers the question quite honestly because a lot of non-believing people get frustrated with Christianity because they say, okay, well, if a guy's going to heaven and it doesn't matter how he lives from that point on, so can he go murder something? You you ever heard that? Well, I I can't answer all that because I'm not God. I don't know where God is in a person's life who would murder somebody, but all I do know is that yes, your life matters at the moment you become a Christian because James Pillars said, faith without what? Works is what? Dead. Now, works does not produce faith and works does not create faith so that you get into heaven through your works. We know that's clearly not taught, but we know what is clearly taught is once your faith is enacted, and you put it in Jesus Christ, what then comes as a result of that is works. And we'll be judged upon that. And so it does matter how we live. So uh, here's a few passages. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. I'm just going to go through these r- real quickly. You can look up on your own. Uh, there's a bunch more, but I'm just trying to get you going on here. But here's the thing, guys. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Jesus, it said, who for the joy set before him. Now think about this. He's getting ready to go to the cross. How did he do it? He did it, it says, who he went to the cross because the joy set before him. In other words, I got the cross, but you know what? I'm not looking at the cross, I'm looking at after the cross. I'm looking for eternity. So, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is now, see, the reward, seated at the right hand of the Father. How about that? You see that? That's what I'm saying, guys. Until you believe you're going to heaven and that this is temporal, there's an eternity, and that's where I'm going, that's where I'm I'm a citizen of, that's where I belong. And my life matters forever. And there's a work to do in this planet. Until you get there, you will not obey God ultimately. You'll still be living for yourself. So Jesus is the perfect model of a man who gave his life for the Father. He had an eternal perspective. And so Psalm 27 through 13, David said this. He said, I would have despaired had I not believed that I would see the goodness of God in the land of the living. In other words, okay, God, I'm going to do what you've asked me to do. And if I hadn't seen that there's a result, there's a benefit of obeying you, I would despair, because this is hard. Hebrews 11, 24, 26. By the way, all of Hebrews 11 is full of reward, which is attached, by the way, to faith. Um... In fact, in Hebrews 11.6, in fact, grab your Bibles, guys, real quick. I want to show you something. You can't miss this. Hebrews 11, and I want you to look at 11.6 first. And if you got it there, that's toward the right side of your Bible, by the way, if you're not familiar with it. And, uh, but Hebrews 11.6 says this, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Wow. I don't know about you, I remember the first time I read this a few years ago, I remember going, wow, I better figure out what faith is. Because if it's the only way to please God, I better examine faith. Now watch this. I'll just give you a clear definition of what faith is. Here it is right here. Without faith, you about please. So what's faith? Faith is he who comes to God. So you've got to come to God. So faith is And that's, by the way, called repentance. Repentance means to turn away from one direction, which is usually my direction, and then turn to God's direction. That's called repentance. You come to God and believe that God is what? He's God. He's everything. He's the creator. I don't exist. He doesn't exist for me. I exist for him. I'm here on purpose for Him. i got to believe that. Now, here's the thing, guys, that a lot of people miss what faith involves. It's not only coming to God, believing that God is, but it's also, look at the conjunction here, and we have to believe that He is what? Whoa! Really? You mean, God, if I give my life to You and I come to You and I obey You, You're going to reward me? Yes! Is that not awesome? I just think as a guy, it's the coolest thing. Because we're wired for that. It's why you guys are doing business today. Glenn, it's why you love the deal, right? Because what's involved in the deal is the reward. It's, you're wired for it, it's natural. And so God says, listen, you come to me, believe that I can do only what I can do, By the way, here's what I want you to understand about who I am. I am a rewarder. You come to me, I'll take care of you. It's just like as a father to my own children. If my kids had a need, men, and I find out they're going other places to try to get a need met and they never came to me, how do you think you'd feel as a dad? Really, would you not be upset? Not like, I hate my kid, but it's like, why is he not coming to me? Why doesn't he talk to me? I mean, I'm his father. Jesus said this about your father. If an earthly father just had to give good gifts to his children, what did he say? How much more does your heavenly father know how to take care of you? I love this because I think a lot of men, depending on what kind of dad even you had, I'm telling you, the father wound influences much of what you think about God. I'm telling you, God is better than your dad could ever think about being. He's amazing. Uh, so Hebrews eleven twenty-four 24, is where I want you to look. 24 through 26. By faith, we'll just take Moses, and there's a whole bunch, we call this theologically the hall of faith. Hebrews 11. But look at uh, 24. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Choosing rather to endure ill-treatment with the people of God than enjoying the passing pleasure of sin. Think about it. He He was the future Pharaoh. He was the one in line. And yet he chose to reject that, the passing pleasures of sin, and endure the ill treatment of God and transfer his allegiance away from Egypt into this God whom he now came to believe in. And it cost him his comfort. Why did he do it? Why did he do it? You wanna see why he did it? Watch this. But it was by faith, but what, I'll want to see which is involved in faith. So why did he do it? Verse 26, He considered the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. You see, he realized there's much more available to me in Christ because it says what? He was looking to the reward. Really? Wow. Guys, you're married to a hard woman. You know why you need a lover? Because you're looking to the reward. you got a situation where somebody's wronged you. You know why you need to come to forgive them? Because you're looking for the reward. You know why when there's a money issue at stake and you might might have to give more than you thought you would? You know why you do it? Not because you think you can get more on this side. Because there's a reward God's watching. (laughs) I'm telling you, I just... It's it's learning to live in the audience of the one who's going to reward you one day. That's why we do right. 2 Timothy 4, 7 through 8. Paul said, I fought the good fight. I finished the course. I've kept the faith. He lived a life like Christ. Very purpose driven. Following the will of the Father. Doing his work. For a woman, the church, that's Paul. That's why most of the New Testament was written by him. And so this life journey, he was in prison. He's writing to Timothy, the last letter he ever writes. Here's what he said. I fought the good fight. I finished the course. I've kept the faith. Now in the future, there's laid up for me, laid up for me, laid up for me, the crown of righteousness, that the righteous judge, my creator, will award me on that day. We don't like to talk about it. It's almost like we like to be so generic as Christians. I tell you guys, you will not do something for nothing. I'm just telling you. And God never expected you to. He's watching you and me. And he will reward you. that yeah, cool. Revelation 22:12. 12, Jesus said, Behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me. To render to every man according to his deeds. I just want to tell you, as a Christian, listen guys, give you rest. You, heaven is not a reward for good behavior. Heaven's a gift. Once you receive the gift, then your life has the potential to matter forever. And so it, it's like this, the idea of reward is like this, okay, hey guys I want you to go outside, I want you to run around this building and every time you run around I'm, I got 50 bucks for you. Okay, go. How many of you are going to go out and run around that building? And every time you run around I'm going to give you 50, every time around I'm going to give you 50, 50, 50. The only time you don't get the 50 is when what? You don't go run around. You suffer the loss of the next 50. You see, eternally, you have everything to gain, nothing to lose, except that which you could have gained. And so that's what's so cool about being a Christian. See, you're not, it's not a heaven-hell thing. It's, God, I want more of you. That's it. I want to, for eternity. I want to hang out and do eternally what you want me to do. That's all, I, that's all I know. And I just figured, gosh, if, if it's not true, which I'm just telling you it is, because if, if you read the Bible, it's all over it. But here's the deal. And I've told guys, if it's not true, then you know what? All I can tell you is I'm having a great time in life. Really, I'm just having a blast. But you know, we're, it's, all, it's all the same, whatever. But if it's true, and our life is an investment, Eternally, then you live your life for then, for the reward, like Paul. I fought the fight. I finished the course. I kept the faith. Now, now, now is the payday. Now is the time. See, guys, the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. And, and until you believe it, you'll never do it. You just won't. Last thing, 1 Corinthians 9. That's where Paul said, do you not know that all those run in a race? Do you not know that all those run a race, each runs to what? Win a prize. That's why you run in the dang race. They, talking about the Greeks, run for the perishable wreath. We, God's people, run, live for what? Imperishable. Therefore, he said, I buffet my body and make it my slave, lest I myself might be what? Disqualified from the prize. Not eternity. Okay, heaven's not a reward. But I could suffer loss. Now, I'm telling you, all I can tell you is, 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 I think Christians have lost this, but the Bible says in Proverbs... The beginning of wisdom is what? The fear of God. And I hope, hopefully, as you're going through, you're going, wow, <laughs> whoa. That kind of scares me a bit. You know what? God is dangerous. But He's also unbelievably awesome and amazing. If we choose to follow His will, do His work for the woman He loves. You see that? Don't mess with him. He takes it seriously. And if you're his child, he's watching us. and He's anticipating. And as men, I tell you, it doesn't make sense any other way to me. I'm just telling you just the way it lays out here. Okay. So, guys, is there a reward now? Yes. Listen, if you follow Christ, here's a reward. The Bible says a good name is more honorable than fine gold. What do people say about you? My dad used to tell me respect is something you get. If you lose it, it's really hard to get it back. Is that not true? Let me tell you guys, if you got a good name, realize it's, a, it's an honor and keep it and grow with it because we could do something stupid and lose it in a second. That's something that's a reward even now. Uh, kids who look up to you, that's my dad. A wife who said, you're my man. Is that a reward? Heck yeah it is, right? Especially the older you get. Uh, friends who say thank you for helping me. People who've never known Christ, who come to know Christ say, Colby, thank you for introducing me to Christ. It's so awesome. Is that a reward? Sure it is, right? See, there's lots of stuff you can do right now that you can experience the benefit of right now. But more importantly, <laughs> eternity is going to be incredible. And we're looking for that. Okay, so what's a real man? Here we go, guys. Ready? A real man is one who rejects passivity, accepts responsibility, leads courageously, rejects passivity, accepts responsibility, leads courageously, and expects the greater reward, which is God's reward. I remember a friend of mine, his wife, had their second or third child, I can't remember, and he was trying to learn to be a leader. And and anyway, his wife came home from the hospital. What happened is he prepared the house, had dinner when she came home, and her parents came with her, and he kind of ushered into the house. And all of a sudden, everything's made, and the dinner's ready, and and the in-laws said, man, that's amazing. You are the man. And then his wife said, well, now he knows what I have to do every day. And he told me, as he told me that story, he said, you know what I was, Bill, at that moment? I said, what? He goes, I was three-quarters of a man that day. Because I had rejected passivity. I embraced the responsibility of caring for my wife. I did it courageously. But what I realized is the moment she walked in that door, I was looking for her reward. And I became three-quarters of a man. And I realized at that moment, he said, it just released me. And I went, you know what? She can say whatever she wants. Because ultimately, I'm doing it for Christ. She's going to be the beneficiary. I'm not going to let her govern me. I'm going to let Christ, in what I know he's called me to do, is right.